0: you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We're moving into a new section in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. And J.I. Packer, who I consider one of the great theologians from last century, he uh, passed away a year or two ago, but he was a British uh, theologian. And he, he... Kind of speaking tongue in cheek, and this actually he said this in the 90s when he was uh, in his 70s, but uh, he said that he learned how to think by reading Agatha Christie novels. And as one of, who I consider one of the great theologians of the past century, that was a surprising thing to hear. He learned how to think by reading mystery uh, novels. And one of the things he said, you know, you learn uh, these, these mystery novels can teach you a way of thinking. And Agatha Christie herself commenting on why her mystery novels were so popular. She was a mystery writer who kind of wrote in the golden age of British uh, mystery detective fiction, and she crafted some of the iconic characters in that genre, like Heracule Perot or Miss Marple. And she said one of the reasons that there's such a draw to this type of, of movie, type of book, is that very few of us are really what we seem Very few of us are really what we assume. She says, we all know that appearances... They can be deceiving, and sometimes the truth can be slippery, and there's secrets that abound everywhere. And if you love mysteries, you know, one of the things that draws you in is the the uncovering of the secrets, looking beneath the surface. That's why I want you to go to any bookstore, it's one of the largest sections, or you pull up any streaming uh, media, you know, you go to the genre tag, and you know, the mysteries and thrillers is one of the largest genres. We're big fans of BritBox, and that's all. All they have on there is like British news shows and then ma- British mysteries. And you know, there's classical characters like Sherlock Holmes or Father Brown or Jessica Fletcher or you think Ben Matlock or Columbo or people who are solving mysteries. One of my favorite current ones is Chet the Dog. So there's a wonderful series. Uh, the Spencer Quinn novels there, Chet the Dog is the main one of the main characters. But what uh, Agatha Christie and one of her companions uh, Patriots Dorothy Sayers said about great mysteries is that you always have kind of three different elements of a good mystery. You have your detective, so you have somebody who's the detec- the detective who gets drawn into a story situation and they have to uncover and oftentimes it's not actually a professional detective. You know, many of these stories, like Sherlock Holmes. You know, Sherlock Holmes was, was actually educated as a doctor and he was taught uh, how to think. Uh, he was trained, you know, fictional character, he was trained at St. Bartholomew's Hospital and their classic textbook was the, the laws of logic, learning to think, or someone like Father Brown. He is a great detective, but he's a priest and uh, he, he credited his ability to unravel the mysteries to the fact that he had listened to so many confessions and people opening up the darkness in their own life. So you have a detective, but it doesn't have to be a professional detective, Being anyone who's trying to make sense of a situation. And then you, you always have some secret. There's a secret that's been covered up. Or it's been hidden. And then you have the kind of the the tension or the drama of of unraveling or pulling on that thread. And then the secret generally in mysteries will take a dark turn. And the secret will reveal what's truly been happening all along or will reveal what was really going on. And as we move into chapter 13, I want to use that for the next several weeks. We're going to look at Jesus's, uh, he gives us, or Matthew gives us seven different parables. And the point or the parables are to function very much like Agatha Christie mysteries function for J.I. Packer. They're meant to teach you how to think. To teach you how to look at the world and try to understand and discern what's really going on out here. So for the month of November, we're gonna we're gonna join Matthew and we'll call it his uh his school of learning to be um, spiritual sleuth. So it's kind of spiritual sleuth school, and we're gonna become detectives so we can unravel the mysteries that we see in life. So what I want to do this morning is just kind of set up that broad structure for Matthew chapter thirteen, and then look back at a couple things that we mentioned last week from chapter 12. So kind of put a bow on chapter 12 and then set up 13. So first let's think about what we're moving into in chapter 13. So uh, Matthew structures his gospel around five major teaching blocks. First major teaching block is the Sermon on the Mount, which kind of gives us the manifesto of the kingdom, how uh, Jesus expects his disciples to live. Matthew 10 is the next major teaching block, and it's on the mission of the kingdom, how how his gospel, how his kingdom is going to go forth. And then here in Matthew chapter 13, we have stories of the kingdom. He gives us these parables to help us make sense how it's supposed to grow and spread. Jesus has told us that he wants us to pray, thy kingdom come. And then these seven stories illustrate what do we mean Or what are we praying for when we pray that his kingdom comes? And so look, kind of big picture at Matthew 13. I think it's helpful often to get the structure. I'm a big fan of seeing the structure, that often the meaning is embedded in how it's ordered and structured. So there's three, um, Matthew very neatly organizes this chapter into three segments with uh, seven parables, and so the first kind of segment, you have the first parable, which is the parable of the sower, and this is the first kind of big parable, and in many ways, this is the master parable of all parables. It's kind of the master key to help you make sense of all the other ones, so he gives you the parable of the sower, and then there's an explanation of why he's using parables, where he's going to quote Isaiah, and then he explains that parable, and then it moves into the next section. The next section has a series of three parables, another big parable with fields, with the wheat and the weeds, and then two smaller ones about the mustard seed seed and the leaven, and then another shorter explanation of the parables, quoting Isaiah, and then another explanation of that second large parable. And then in the third section, you have parables five through seven, and these are smaller parables, parables of the hidden treasure, the pearl, the net, then you have this dynamic back and forth of the disciples who understand and then Jesus' hometown who reject and they don't understand. And one of the dynamics, you know, Jesus wants you to learn how to use your mind, learn to see. So in the first two parables, he's going to walk you through the interpretation and then he expects you to be able to get it and to be able to interpret uh, the others. So we're going to move through these in the next month, but kind of having that big structure can be helpful. But as we do, there's a couple of things that are really important to keep in mind as we look at the parables. And the first one is that the parables, um, they will hide meaning as much as they will reveal them. You know, it's very common, uh, you know, it's it kind of a common assumption that, you know, we love stories, people love to hear stories. So I probably receive an advertisement, you know, once every week for a different book encouraging preachers to utilize stories in their, their preaching. I love stories. I like to tell them. Um, I think it's a good idea to test to just a good rhetorical strategy. But often it said, well, look, Jesus told stories to, to, to explain, you know, things because people love stories, so you should tell but you actually look at why he says he uses the parables and it's not to make things clear. It's not just to entertain us. Actually, pick up in verse 10 of chapter 13. Then the disciples came up and asked him, why are you speaking to them in parables? And he answered, because of the secrets. You translate the mysteries, the secrets. The mysteries, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you to know, but it has not been given to them. For whoever has, more will be given to him, and whoever, and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away. That is why I speak to them in parables, because looking they do not see, and hearing they do not hear or understand. And so Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in them, which says, You will listen and listen, but never understand, and you will look and look, but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown callous. And their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn back. And I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see the things you see but didn't see them and to hear the things that you hear but didn't hear them. And so they're actually creating this division. So the first thing the parables do, they actually hide meaning from those who refuse to listen. Jesus doesn't begin with parables. He actually begins with very clear teaching. You have heard it said, but I say to you. This is what I say to you. And then he comes to parables as a way to conceal... As much as a way to reveal. See, the scary thing about parables is they're not just meant to entertain you. They're meant to reflect you. They're mirrors. They reveal the status of your heart. And you can kind of see the growth and development. You know, Jesus begins teaching his disciples with very clear instructions. This is what I say to you. But as we grow and as we develop, we should have the ability to grow and be able to see kind of nuance and, and make connections. It's kind of like dealing with your children. You know, we're at a wonderful stage where uh, everything is very literal to our children. And so it's kind of fun to... to um mess around with them uh, along those lines. But at a stage where everything's very literal, but as you grow and develop, you begin to see more things. And so this will both hide and reveal. You know, often we assume that if people aren't getting what we're saying, it's because we're not communicating clearly. Jesus doesn't assume that. He understands the reason why they're not getting what he's saying is because their hearts are hard and cold. And one of the things that the parables will do will actually reveal the status of your own heart. And you can see this in so many ways. Like, one of the things that's going to be needed is, do you come with a posture where you want to hear and want to understand? Or you come with a posture where you already know and are already ready to critique? I mean, one of the amazing things, I just... I I don't know if it's always been this way or just since I've become more of a self-aware adult, I see it. But I first noticed it when George W. Bush was president. And then with every successive president, it's amazing to me how they can say anything. And if you are against that president and don't like him, it doesn't matter what they say. You'll turn it somehow into some disastrous negative comment. And it's just interesting it doesn't matter. It could be Obama or it could be Trump. And they could say something. And depending on where people are, they'll just always turn it. And some of them, you know, some, of them, some people just require more work to try and understand what they're saying. But you can. You say, All right, You know he doesn't mean that. This is what he's trying to say. And it reveals a posture of a heart. And one of the things the parables do, they reveal a posture of your heart. Are you going to listen to Jesus? You know, it's one thing not to listen to, you know, politician X or politician Y. It's a whole other story to have that posture when you come to Jesus. And so the parables are actually intended, not necessarily to make things clear, but to reveal. And every one of the parables will have this this separation where there's a separating between uh, those who hear the word and are fruitful and those who are not. Those who are drawn in and those who are not. Things that are worth selling your life for and things that are not. So they bring about this division and... uh, One of the purposes is, you know, one of the things we'll see is the people who kind of get things explained to them or the people who desire the explanation, they come to Jesus and they ask him, help us, help us to see. Because the purpose of the parables is to capture kind of your imagination so you see the world differently. Reimagine how you're viewing the world. But another thing is these are also one of the keys to solving life's mysteries. You know, in many ways, each of these parables set up a, a riddle a problem that needs to be solved. And as we go through, we'll see that every detail has certain symbolic meaning. And one of the challenges is, all right, what does that mean? What does it symbolize? What does it represent? So there's a sower, and that means something. There's ground, and that represents something. There's a seed, and that represents something. There are thorns, and they represent something. There are birds, and they represent something. And one of the keys is, all right, what are all these details about the story? What do they represent? And they're they're keying you in on certain clues about how you make sense of the mystery of life. See, these aren't just kind of moral stories in general. They're commentaries on why the world is like this. How does the kingdom come? You know, the parable of the soils is helping us understand why is there such a different re, uh, reaction and reception to the words of Jesus. He's given these words, and there's such different responses. Why? Why do they respond so differently? The parable of the wheat and the weeds is helping us understand right, why is there still eat like why is there evil in the world? And why is it mixed? Like you live in a society like the church, and you be if you're in any church long enough, you recognize in this place there is tremendous dignity and self-sacrifice and beauty and humility. But then there's also tremendous Pettiness and all types of depravity. Why? How can these two things be mixed in the same place? And that parable helps us understand why is there evil in the world? And not just in the world, why is there evil in us? Why are we mixed? Not only is why is this, you know, why are other people mixed? Why why am I mixed like this? You know, the parable of the seeds and the yeast, the mustard seeds. This is right, why how how does the kingdom grow? Why does it matter that it starts slow and starts small? and then grows and expands. How is that supposed to shape how we think about spiritual life and spiritual growth? I mean, does it matter that real spiritual growth? I mean, it's like barbecue. It, it, this is not microwave chicken nuggets. Real spiritual growth is slow and steady. It's slow cooking. It's slow growing. So what? why does that matter? How does that help me understand what it means to bring about his kingdom in the world, or the mystery of the treasure and the pearls. What does this tell me about what uh, his kingdom and his gospel is worth? Is it worth my life? Is it worth me selling everything for? So they're uncovering mysteries, helping us to see. You know, these parables are a mirror that reveal you know, who you are and where you stand and the relationship between life and his kingdom is explained by them. And so what we'll see is there's a connection. If you remember last week, well, look back in chapter 12, because last week we finished chapter 12, which is the conclusion of that section, and then it moves in. But in chapter 12, it's one of the great mysteries. It's kind of we can we can start. Maybe the first test case on how to unravel the mysteries of life it happens in chapter 12 and then to chapter 13. It's the mystery of why does Jesus' own family In his own hometown, why do they not receive him? Why are they rejecting him? And so you can look back in chapter 12, verse 46, while he was still speaking with the crowds, his mother and his brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. And someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to the one who was speaking to him, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, "'Hear, my mother, hear, my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father.'" In heaven is my brother and sister and mother, and there's whoever does the will. And now, this whole section about what does it mean that his kingdom comes? So, the way, I mean, he's taught us to pray, that's our framework. Your kingdom come, your will be done. How does his kingdom come? It comes by his will being done. They're connected. What does it mean to do his will? What does it mean to see his kingdom come? They're united. But now, so that kind of sets us up where we're going to go throughout the month of November. But I want to kind of linger on what we looked at last week and think about that first kind of great mystery here. You know, why does his family at this point reject him? Why do they not get him? Or look at his hometown, the way this whole section concludes, starting in verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he left there and he went to his hometown and he began to teach them in their synagogue. And so they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, aren't they all here with us? So where does he get all these things? And they were offended by him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do any miracles there or did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. So it's this kind of remarkable mystery why is this whole chapter is framed by his family rejecting him and his hometown rejecting him, the ones you would expect to celebrate, the ones who you would expect to be on the front line of encouraging and supporting him. Why? What does this teach us? I mean, in one sense, I think it's remarkably comforting, that you see, even Jesus had issues in his family. So, if Jesus has had, Jesus's family had issues, then you probably shouldn't be surprised if yours has issues. And we looked last week, the church is probably the largest pro family institution in the world, but the relationship between the church and the family can be complicated. And if you're going to live rightly in the natural family you have, and if you're going to live rightly as a disciple in the spiritual family he gives and creates, you need to know what that relationship is. And this, this section can help us. Now, this whole section moving out of chapter 13 is moving into Jesus forming his community, his family. But I wanted to bring up a couple things from, or just kind of reiterate and, uh, from last week. We, we talked about how the family is the natural habitat for flourishing humans to grow. It's a natural habitat. It's the place where you learn what it means to love and to love. It's a place where you learn what it means to live. You learn how to love and how to live. And uh, quoting Tim Keller, it's a a learning community that's built on a, a life, a covenant, a lifetime commitment, a covenantal relationship where you're meant to learn what it means to love and what it means to live. And any society where the family unravels, that society is going to unravel. But I want to think as we think about all right, how do we make sense of this mystery, the mystery that his family doesn't support him, his hometown doesn't support him. In chapter 12, one of the kind of banners that's over the whole chapter is you are either for me or you were against me. Who is for me or are you against me? It's hanging in the air and kind of the shock is that it seems that his family, his hometown are not for him So let's think about that just uh, quickly. Notice, look, the rejection um, of his family. Just notice how they were outside? He was on the inside teaching. His disciples are sitting at his feet. And then in chapter 12, uh, starting verse 46, they're on the outside. They haven't come in. And you can see other gospel writers give us some of that kind of relational tension in John chapter 7. His brothers are mocking him and uh, you, know, t- you know, t- telling him he's going to go up into the festival and uh, he needs to go. And why would he stay home from the festival? They think you know, that he's going, he's risking his life to go. And Mark chapter 3 kind of unpacks some of the tension here where Mark says that his family thought he was crazy. So they were going to get him because he's saying these wild things. Publicly, And what I find, you know, so alarming is that you notice in chapter 12, even Mary, his mother is there. Even Mary, as faithful as she was 30 years ago, as a young teenager and hearing the tremendous word that she'll be the one who bears the the son of God into the world. And the, the classic statement of the ultimate servant, blessed be the name of the Lord. Let it be unto me according to the word of the Lord. And then even Mary, as faithful as she was 30 years ago, is struggling to understand who Jesus is and what he's doing. She doesn't understand the ministry of the suffering servant, even though she sang about it 30 years ago. And this chapter, chapter 11, chapter 12, is actually bookend by two of Jesus' closest relationships. The two people who you would expect more than any other earthly humans to love and support him. John the Baptist, the forerunner, and his mother Mary. And both of them are struggling with this gap that they see between what they expected him to do and what they're experiencing from him. And we ought to pause and think if, if John the Baptist or if Mary, I mean, if Mary, the mother of our Lord. And, you know, in church history, there's many who have a very high esteem and estimation of Mary. I mean, there's a church in Orlando that says, you know, Mary what it, a queen of the universe. That's a very high opinion of someone. If even Mary is struggling with this gap between what she expected and what she's experiencing, there's no one in this room who's not above that struggle. And I imagine every person in this room at different ways, in different times, and in different situations and seasons has struggled with this gap between what we expected and then what we experienced. Maybe you, maybe it happened to you and uh, you got a new job and you had certain expectations about what it would be and what it would bring and what you would do, and then the slow dawning of the gap between your expectations and what it really was, or maybe it happens in marriages or it happens in marriages, and not maybe, it does. Or you have certain expectations about what it's supposed to be and what it's going to do, and then there's this gap, or it can happen in family life. It can happen just in life in general, where you just wake up one day and you realize, you know, I just thought I'd be so much farther along. I thought I'd be in a different place. What do you do when you struggle with that gap? And I find it really encouraging that if even John the Baptist and even Mary struggle with that, then we're not alone, and it's not unusual. And what both of them did, they both did the wise thing. Both of them, they went to him. In those times where you're struggling with that, don't turn from him. Don't turn away. Both of them went to him. And in both cases, they had to wait. But they both went to him. And so one of the lessons that we can learn, or a couple key lessons we can learn from Jesus' kind of family issues, is if there's confusion, if there's concern, there's even hostility in Jesus' family. And we shouldn't be surprised when we see it in ours. But another thing we can learn about his family is we can take the long view. You know, Jesus' family issues help us take the long view of ours. You know, if you have a family member who, who doesn't believe, or maybe you have a family member or situation where there is confusion, there is tension, there is breaking, there is conflict you know one of the beautiful things about mary and jesus's brothers is this is not the last time we see them we'll see them again in the story you know even you get to the cross and mary's still there despite the difficulty despite the challenge despite seemingly not to pan out the way she thought it was going to she's still there And then you have Jesus giving uh, his disciple John to Mary as her new son. It's his responsibility to take care of her. And you have one of the greatest pieces in all of, you know, Western art. uh, This piece by Michelangelo, pull out that picture. That's, you know, we don't know if that actually happened, but it's this image called, you know, the piety, the love, the devotion of Mary holding the broken body of Jesus. She's still there. She hasn't left. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it tells us that Mary and all of Jesus' brothers are in the upper room. And here, they're on the outside. They're not on the inside. But by the time you get to Acts, they're all there with him. They're inside. They've been brought in. And then by the time you get to Acts chapter 15, one of his brothers that we saw here, James. James is the leader of the church. He's the head of the church in Jerusalem. And, you know, there's so many biblical characters I would love to hear their story, and I think probably the top five I would love to get a more fuller biography of would be James. I mean, can you imagine what it was like being Jesus' younger brother? I mean, maybe your older brother, you have an older sibling who was of kind of successful. Uh, I mean, can you imagine being in that shadow? And then here you see James is kind of leading, and he's, he's, uh, he doesn't believe He's not following, he's not getting what Jesus is doing. But by the time there's this tremendous transformation and he becomes you know, the pillar of the church in Jerusalem. And I wonder if there's not something in the fact that in James' book, James's book is one of the most practical in the New Testament. It's called kind of the New Testament wisdom literature. It's, you know, Paul can kind of lift you into the heights of kind of theological speculation, but James is just no-nonsense, down-to-earth practicality. And I wonder if there's not some resonance of here where Jesus says, who are my real brothers? The, the, the real brothers are the ones who do the will of my father. And James is utterly committed to doing the will of the father in his, his life. But you can take the long view, very long view. And you know, that's why one of the gifts that a church is where you can be with people in different stages because they can help you see you know, one of the great gifts that you know, one of the women's Bible studies is to Cynthia's is uh, different uh, ladies in different life stages, especially in regards to uh, to children. And you know, there's certain stages where you can get in and you can feel like you're caught up into a Lego fueled whirlwind. And then there's just so helpful to have you in other stages to remind you about what's essential, what's important, what these type things that help you take the long view. I used to love when we were at our church in Alabama. Um, you know, At the time, the girls were very young. They were like one and zero, and then two and one. And we had a wonderful, sweet man who uh, kept the grounds. And every time he'd walk in, and if it was ever, I mean, one minute past five, he would look at me and say, Why are you here? Go to those babies. Like, yes, sir. And help you take the long view, but it also can help you take the wide view. Because one of the things we can do is we can get so narrow. You know, there's a saying, "Blood is thicker than water." I don't know if you ever wondered where that came from or even what it means. I've looked it up. It's a it's a French proverb that means family. Your blood is the is the the thickest is thicker than water. It's the thickest thing that no matter what, through thick and thin, family uh, will always be there. And one of the things Jesus is actually saying there actually is a water. That's thicker than blood. It's the water of the baptism, and what he's doing is he's not breaking down the natural family; he's just expanding it, and he's making the the, the he's expanding it so it'll grow. So just as the the natural family is the natural habitat for the flourishing of a human, the spiritual family is the natural habitat for your spiritual flourishing. It's one of the reasons why books like this are so important because it's help us to remember what is the context in which we grow and thrive spiritually. So as we look at this passage, you know, it should be a warning to us. It's really sobering to look at chapter 12 and think, all right, the Pharisees with all, and the scribes, with all of their biblical skill and wisdom, they still miss Jesus. They weren't a part of his family. It's even scarier to think at this point, even his physical family are missing him and not part of his family. So it's possible to be very religious and miss it. It's possible to be uh, physically related to him. And not religious. And then one of the shockers, as you can see in verse end of chapter 13, is that even be a part of his hometown. This is surprising to me because Nazareth is, is a small town. It's very small. Population, probably five, maybe eight hundred at this time. When we went to Israel, we got to see the remains of the synagogue that Jesus probably grew up in and learned and memorized most of his old testament. It's a tiny little thing. And now, if you've ever grown up in a small town, you know, one of the things that's interesting about small town life is if you have anybody who makes it in any kind of, in any way, often you're pretty proud of them. There's a couple of B, well, B might be too high. There's a couple of like C-level celebrities who grew up in my hometown, and every time we see them in any fashion, I say, oh, Cynthia, look, that's Tyler. Tyler used to lead worship at our church. I said, I know, I know. You told me 10,000 times. Well, well, they're in my hometown. And you grow up in a small town, like you celebrate the people who make it. And here, Jesus becoming one of the most notable people in, in all of history. Why are they not celebrating? What is their issue? They come and they take offense At him and this is shocking you know the times we spent in a small town you know the town we were in in Alabama had about five six thousand people in the town and Cynthia graduated from Winter Park High School which has about 5,000 students so the town was the size of her high school and we go people say is it hard living in a small town and the answer is always well no small towns aren't hard small people are hard (laughs) living around small people are hard And the beauty about life is you can be in any size town and be around small people. Small people are everywhere. And one of the challenges for all of us is I think one of the most negative spiritual ramifications of the past year and a half is is all of us have been forced in some ways to become small. You become small. And one of the things they say about the way the 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 parables, what they teach us, is that you can become, if you take something that's small and it can grow in importance, and then you actually become small too. You become petty. But you can take something that's that's grand and glorious and beautiful, and you can implant that into you, and it can grow and you can become grand. You can become glorious. You can become beautiful. And each week we celebrate, you know, one of the great mysteries. Uh, there's many uh, church traditions who before they have communion, they say, let us celebrate the mystery of our faith. Let's proclaim the mystery. And one of the mysterious ways is something seemingly so small and so in, insignificant can enter into us and grow to bring life. And one of the things that this, mysteri- this mystery is it reveals the pathway for our forgiveness of sins. So when the blood, it symbolizes and it represents uh, the forgiveness of sins. So on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This blood represents my body broken for you. And then afterwards he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink this all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant shed for you and for the many, for the forgiveness of sins. And so what this but it symbolizes, it represents, it represents the cleansing and the forgiveness that we can have and that we can find. And so we all come to him, needy. We all come. One of the things that parables do is it makes us reveal to us who we really are. So let's take a moment and ask ask the Lord to help us to know truly what this represents spiritually. So most merciful Father, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and word and in deed and by what we have done and what we have left done, undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And we are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy and forgive us. And we celebrate this forgiveness that's offered through his son. And now may the love of a dying savior, the power of a risen savior, and the hope of a returning savior will be yours now, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.